0: Thank you, Dan. I feel very at home here. I think it's theological, I'm not sure. Um, But I really enjoy it very much. Thank you so much for letting me do this. I'm very excited about what I have to tell you. So I'm going to ask God's help to do it so that it will not just be interesting because I'm enjoying it, but but will be life-changing because he's doing it. Father, come now. And uh, in these few minutes we have together... Teach us, Holy Spirit, be on me and on these people in such a way that whatever I say that's true would feel gloriously true to them. And if I say anything amiss, may it go right by them. So do a mighty transforming work for them and for the thousands of children who will be affected by their lives and teaching. I pray this in Jesus' great name, amen. So let's put the uh, conference text before us again. I assume it's been put before you. Acts 20, 26 to 27, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink... From declaring to you the whole counsel of God now I infer from this text that there is a body of truth whole counsel of God that is so important that if people don't have it and believe it they perish Verse 27 Because I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I am innocent of your blood. Innocent of your blood. (laughs) That doesn't mean if I tell it to you, if I tell it to you, then you won't bleed. (laughs) They will. Precisely because he tells it to them. It means if I tell it to you and you receive it, you won't perish forever. This is really important, right? This is really important that they get this body of truth. Now, Acts is not the only place where this reality of a body of truth is referred to. Give you three other instances. Romans 6 17 goes like this Thanks be to God that you, were one, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So, not an interesting phrase. Type or standard of teaching. And I'm suggesting that's probably the same reality as whole counsel of God. You were ha- in the discipling ministry to the Romans, they were handed to a standard of teaching, and by God's grace, they became submissive and obedient to it. Here's another one. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, Follow, here's the third one, the pattern of sound words. Another fascinating phrase. Father, the the pattern of sound words that you have uh, heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Here's the fourth one. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Here they are. Four names of something like a coherent Body of teaching. One, whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27. Two, standard of teaching to which you are committed, Romans 6, 17. Three, pattern of sound words. And four, good deposit entrusted to you, 2 Timothy 1, 13 to 14. So in the early church, it seems to me that as the scriptures were coming into being, the New Testament scriptures, There was a a deposit or a whole council or a pattern of teaching that all the apostles felt profoundly obligated to make sure it went from generation to generation, even while the Scriptures hadn't yet been completed. The only way we have any access to that body of truth is the Scriptures. The scriptures are the god breathed explanation and illustration for hundreds, thousands of years of what that truth is. So there is a core, and at the center of that core is the gospel, I think. And then there's this body of teaching without which you perish, and then there's all the inspired scriptures containing it, explaining it, illustrating it, showing how it worked in history, all of which is important or you're going to get it wrong. So when I think about the relationship between the, the Scriptures and the whole counsel of God, I don't equate them. Okay? All the Scriptures weren't in existence yet when he used the phrase. He was writing the Scriptures, so it's, they're not identical. However. Here's the way Paul relates them, I think. Um, He calls it um, a standard of teaching. So the whole counsel of God is a standard of teaching. And then he says of the Scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.16, they were, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. So if you get the scriptures right and try to bring them together in a coherent whole, a statement of the body of truth, then you're going to get the whole counsel of God right. Which means to me, the quickest way to lose the gospel at the center, the whole counsel of God around it, is to lose the scriptures. If you lose the scriptures, there's no place to go. There's no place to look for this body of truth that saves sinners that that without which you perish blood is on on your hands we we have it in a book god didn't choose to give us a pamphlet which night or or the bethlehem affirmation of faith where i work i, I with the elders spent 4 years working on an affirmation of faith which i wanted to be this that's what i wanted it to be he didn't give us that I I wrote that. God wrote the Bible, and the Bible is the only authoritative, sure place where we can distill something like a whole body of truth so that when a pastor is done after 30 years or so, your blood is not on his hands. He didn't preach every verse in the Bible, but hopefully the whole counsel of God so that he can say... Your blood is not on my hands. Now, trying to move towards where I'm going. If the scriptures are that important, if they're the only place where you have an authoritative, sure, true deposit of truth from which you can learn everything you need to know in order for people's blood, little children's blood, not to be on your hands, whoa, we better not lose that book and we better be sure that it's true. That's what's at stake for me. In the last two years, I have devoted more time, more focused time, to thinking about how to know the scripture is true and how to read it than I ever have in all my life. Kind of strange. I'm 70. So what would you do if you were 70 and you had finished a big chapter of pastoral ministry and now you do anything you want to do? I I just look at the book. That's what I do. I I want to look at the book. I want to understand the book. I want to explain the book. I want to enjoy the book. I want to live in the book and spread the book and know the God of the book. And therefore, for the last couple of years, uh, I've, I've spent time writing two books about the book. My books are not the book, they're just about the book, and to the degree that they're faithful to the book, they're worthwhile, and to the degree that they're not, they're not. The first question I asked in February or March of last year was, how do I know it's true? And how can I help people know it's true? And how can you help children know it's true? That's gonna be the topic. And so I wrote that, and I think it's in the bookstore somewhere, called uh, A a Peculiar Glory, and you'll know why, hopefully in about 30 minutes from now. Um, Then this year, I thought, okay, if the Bible shows itself to be the Word of God by the revelation of a self-authenticating peculiar glory, what does that imply for how you read it? How you use it to be changed and to do ministry? That was this year's question, and I finished that two weeks ago. Lord willing, that'll be out next year at this time. So, two books just to say at 69 and 70, that's first priority for me. You know, I could, I could be devoting myself to some doctrine, happy to do it, Christian hedonism, Calvinism, whatever. If, if the next generation... Forsakes the Bible, loses the Bible, doesn't matter how orthodox they are right now, it's over. It's just history. So, that's what's going on inside of me. And so, when I was invited to come here, I looked at the topic. I said, can I just massage that to say what I want to say <laughs> about the Bible? And they were nice enough to let me, let me do that. So, the topic is... Um, how can you help a six-year-old be sure the Bible's true? That's my question. And, and my approach is going to be to ask how you can know. And then I, I, I pushed myself to think of four observations at the end of how that relates to kids. I didn't write the book for kids. It's, no kid's going to read that book. Um, <laughs> but I do hope that those who are thoughtful in reading it will see if this is true for adults, it better be true for kids. You'll see why that matters. Not like the kids know the Bible is true this way. Adults know the Bible is true this way. No way. No way. That won't work. Background. Ever since I got serious say, age 22, of of wrestling with arguments for the truth of the Bible, against the truth of the Bible. Ever since then, I have been impelled to come at it a peculiar way, a certain way, and I'll tell you why. I was exposed to what I considered the very best apologetic arguments there were in 1968, 69, 70, my seminary years. I loved them. I loved them. People were arguing for my book. You know, I'd grown up believing the Bible. Believe it because my parents believed it, for goodness sakes. Why else would a kid believe it? And so I'm, I'm in seminary and they're, they're believers and they're arguing with good, solid, logical, historical, philosophical reasons for why it's good, right, necessary to believe that the Bible is completely true. And I was, yay, in class. And then I discovered something. A week goes by. Two weeks go by. And I remember that argument. There was a really good argument. And I cannot reproduce it. Too complicated. There were six steps in the argument. I think I can remember four. And I'm supposed to now talk to somebody and persuade them that the Bible is True, help them believe. And I, I can't remember, it's only two weeks, not 30 years. And I, I began to feel, good night, that's fragile. That's a fragile foundation. Like I'm loving it in class when somebody else is successfully doing it and I totally believe in it. I'm not calling it into question. I think there's a place for apologetics like that. Write those books if you can. They help students like me, they do. They get them over humps but I promise you, you won't die with that on your lips. You won't. won't. When you're at the stake or being nailed up like a priest was over in the Middle East on a cross on Good Friday, if you're being persecuted, you won't remember them. And therefore, if your confidence that the truth of the Bible depends on you reproducing valid arguments sequentially and historically and philosophically you're cooked you it's you won't make it okay now that was a big problem for me here's the way i posed the question i, I said look i'm i'm a middle class highly educated seminary student and i'm not able to do this what in the world is happening for the church and The way I put it to myself was, what does it mean for missions in Papua New Guinea with a pre-literate tribesman who's heard the gospel three weeks ago, believed it, and is called upon to die for his faith one month into his new life? Is he a fool, or is he warranted? Is his faith so justifiable, so well-grounded, so warranted, he's not a fool to die for Jesus. That's my question. And then that makes it pretty easy to apply to kids because those kids are a lot like him. No formal education yet. No big historical reasoning possibilities, no awareness of any historical facts. Papua New Guinea didn't even know the rest of the world exists when this evangelism started. So, I'm asking you just right now, do you think that, say, the narrative way of doing evangelism in a, in a village, pre-literate, no books, no literacy... And you take six months, tell them the whole story of the Bible, get to the cross, and the whole village believes. You ever seen those videos? Awesome. The village believes, repents. They've known the existence of an outside world for six months. Jesus is being told to them. They repent and they believe. And in conflicts with another tribe, they might have to die for their faith. Is that crazy? Or do they have warranted faith? Warranted belief in the stories of the Bible. That's my question. So, I got help, maybe you would think, from a surprising source, namely Jonathan Edwards. Um, And it isn't because Jonathan Edwards is the most brilliant theologian America has ever produced, which he is, in my humble opinion, (laughs) or proud opinion. That's not the reason he helped me. He got fired from his church after 23 years. They dismissed him over a con—well, a bunch of cluster of things, the way he mishandled some sexual innuendos about teenagers in his church that he, he spoke from the pulpit, when he, which he shouldn't have. It was a terrible pastoral blunder, infuriated the parents, which it should have, and, and, and because of a doctrinal controversy about the Lord's table, It was a cluster of things. Anyway, they said, you're out of here. Which broke his heart. He's now, he died when he was 54, and he died in eight, 1758. The last eight years of his life, he spends in a small frontier village called Stockbridge, and he ministers to Indians who can't read. This is the most brilliant philosophical, theological mind in all of New England, and I think all of American history, and he's spending the last six years of his life writing sermons or thinking sermons for people who are the least educated in in America, and he wrote this. His question became my question, can those Indians be sure of the gospel, can they be sure? that the Bible stories I'm telling them are true. I'll read you what he wrote. Miserable is the condition of the Housatonic Indians and others who have so lately manifested a desire to be instructed in Christianity if they can come at no evidence of the truth of Christianity sufficient to induce them to sell all for Christ in any other way but the path of historical reasoning. Long, complicated sentence. They're miserable, he says, if the only avenue to which they can come to solid evidence and faith is a historical process of reasoning, they don't have a chance. Next paragraph. Thus, a soul may have a kind of intuitive knowledge of divinity, of the things exhibited in the gospel. Not that he judges the doctrines of the gospel to be from God without any argument or deduction at all, but it is without any long chain of arguments. The argument is but one, and the evidence direct. The mind, this is the key sentence, the mind ascends to the truth of the gospel, but by one step, that is its divine glory. That sentence took hold of me and has never let me go. One more paragraph. Unless men may come to a reasonable, solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by the internal evidences of it, namely by a sight of its glory. "'Tis impossible that those who are illiterate and unacquainted with history should have any thorough or effectual conviction of it at all." I think that's true. If the Bible does not carry in it the kind of evidences, and he said those evidences are the streaming forth of a divine and supernatural light, a potential. Peculiar glory is what I'm going to call it. A peculiar glory coming out of the book as you understand its true meaning. Coming out, seen by the, not these eyes, but the eyes of the heart that you know when you see it. That's God. If that's not true, we won't have warranted, justifiable, worthy of dying for confidence in the Bible. We'll embrace it for tradition or good feelings or whatever, but we won't embrace it like we embrace the light of the sun on the noon day. So Edwards is arguing that a reasonable, warranted, well-grounded conviction of the truth of the gospel and the scriptures is owing to seeing the glory of God in it. Now. My guess is that way of talking is not familiar to you. Nevertheless, I'm looking out across this room now and and just judging by the kind of people that would come to a conference like this. My judgment is that hundreds of people in this room right now have experienced what I'm talking about. And you've never formulated it in those terms at all. And you're kind of right there sitting like, yikes, if that's, the, if that's the way you come to be sure about the Bible, I thought I was sure about the Bible, and I've never heard of that. That's okay. And the reason it's okay, I'm, I'm going to relate this to kids later, the reason that's okay is do you not know that virtually everybody's supernatural spiritual experience runs ahead of your ability to name it. <laughs> your new birth happened to you before you understood reformed soteriology. I don't care how reformed you are, that, that's, <laughs> that happened. Just like every baby is born before he can explain being born. So, don't worry too much yet. I mean, you might have reason to worry later, but right now, don't panic. What I wanna do for the, for the few minutes that we have is try to help you begin to um, put on the terminology that I'm, I'm using by analogies that I think are more familiar to you, okay? I'm gonna try to take you where you are in your Bible familiarity Show you that what you do believe is very much like what I'm saying here, and, and slowly you'll be able to say, Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that probably is how I am confident about the Bible. And I never even thought of it that way. Okay, that's what I'm after. Um, I have three analogies to suggest to you, and they get closer and closer to Scripture and the analogies are analogies between things that you know are validated by a sight of glory and the scriptures being validated by a sight of glory which you you don't know maybe all right number 1 psalm 19 verse 1 the heavens are telling the glory of god Stop there, and and then we'll go to Romans 1. What does that mean? The heavens are telling the glory of God. It does not mean that the brightness and the order and the magnitude and the majesty of the galaxies are the glory of God. We're not pantheists. Nature is not God. Therefore, that when Einstein, who's not a believer, looked into the heavens and was so blown away by its glory that he considered the preachers to be talking about things they didn't know what they were talking about. That was Einstein's opinion about church. He said, I have seen so much more glory than the pastors have seen. They're not talking about the real thing. Whoa. What an indictment. I read that 30 years ago, and I thought, God, don't ever let that happen to me. Please don't ever let that happen to me as a preacher, that a scientist would walk into this church, hear my sermon, and say, you're not talking about the real thing. I put my eye to a telescope, and you've never seen what I've seen. That's a small God. I want to say, the God I know carries what you saw in that telescope in his back pocket. So, the first thing I want to say is the heavens are telling the glory of God, and what you see with your physical eyes is not the glory of God. Therefore, what you see with the lenses of your physical eyes is supposed to mediate to other eyes the glory of God. You are supposed to see and then see remember what Jesus said? Seeing they do not see. Seeing they do not see. That's what he wept over Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered? you not see? Don't you see? And yes, they saw. No, they didn't see. And you walk out tonight, and if the clouds are moved out of the way, and you look up into those stars, all of you will see the cosmos telling the glory of God. And some of you, I hope, Almost all of you will see the glory of God. Now, what I mean by that is this looking up, something will immediately, intuitively happen that says, I cannot not believe God made that. Too many knots in that sentence. Say it again, because that was, I meant to say it that way. I'm going to say it that way again, because I have tried not to believe in the God of the heavens. I've tried just to see if I can make it happen. It's like, it's like you right now looking at me and saying, I'm going to try to believe he's not there. You, I don't think you could. I don't think you could make yourself believe I'm not here. You'd have to have a drug, you know, or something. You'd so, when you look up, I'm saying that if you have the second pair of eyes, Paul calls them the eyes of the heart, Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of the heart, you will with your physical eyes see this dramatic display of the glory of God, and these other eyes will will spontaneously, immediately, without any long train of argument, say, I cannot not believe God made that." that. I think that's the way it happens. Now, Romans 1 confirms this, 19 to 21. I'll read it to you. It's very familiar. You know it. You can look at it if you want, but listen otherwise. Romans 1, 19. What can be known about God is plain to them. Wow. That, them meaning everybody. Because God has shown it to them. God has shown God to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. We are responsible for that intuitive reaction, God made that. If you don't have that reaction, you have no excuse of the judgment day. Nobody will be sent to hell for not believing in Jesus if they haven't heard about Jesus. People will only perish for not saying God did that, God is merciful, God is wise. Look, because we all suppress it. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, my guess is in this room, that's not an unfamiliar teaching, I hope not. And you all feel at home with that. I hope you do. I say, okay, I've heard that. That's not weird. I get that. God has revealed God through the things that he has made. The things that he made are not God. The glory of God that existed long before there was anything he made. Therefore, that glory is not this glory. This glory witnesses to that glory. And therefore, I am responsible for seeing through the glory of the creation to the glory of God and know that he made it. All of that, I think, is familiar to you. If it's not, then my analogies are not working. <laughs> but if, it, if it's not, get on board. Come on. This is Bible. <laughs> analogy number two. So, maybe I didn't finish the analogy. Just like the world of God is authenticated as God's by the glory of God revealed through it, so the word of God is authenticated by God, by the glory of God revealed through it. That's my argument. I'm just giving you analogies right now so you kind of understand the categories. Analogy number two. And believe it or not, this is going to relate to kids. Analogy number two. God's appearance in Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God, incarnate God-man, is authenticated, validated by divine glory shining through Jesus Christ, the God-man, for those who have eyes to see. So, I'm using, we start with creation, I'm going now to incarnation. You with me? Here's the text. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 14.8, Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and you don't know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Judas looked at the God-man for three years. Sold him. Did he see him? <laughs> yeah, he saw him every day. And he didn't, never saw him. He never saw him. He saw him and never saw him. Do you remember what happened outside Lazarus's tomb? Sister Martha and Mary, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And then he prays, Father, I'm talking out loud now so they'll know this is of you. Lazarus, dead four days, stinks. Lazarus, come out. And the word created life and obedience. And he comes out. And the Pharisees see it and plot to kill And later they plot to kill Lazarus because they know it's true. True, 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 if they don't see it. Go figure. What I'm trying to make plain with that little analogy is there is a glory, according to 114, that the sun had and many saw it and believed, and others saw it and didn't see it. So if you were to ask, I mean, Jesus says, Philip, have I been so long with you and you don't know me? What's up, Philip? (laughs) So Jesus would say to you and me, if we were there, you are accountable to see more than a mere man. The way I talk. The way I love, the way I deal with children, the way I deal with with women, the way I deal with lepers, the way I deal with Pharisees, my constellation of personhood is unmistakably self-authenticating. The glory of God is shining through me. Are you blind? Yes, they were blind. He said they were blind guides, and both will fall into a pit. And they were responsible to be seeing. So my second illustration, first, nature in revealing the glory of God validates, authenticates, demonstrates this is God's world. And the incarnation, because of the same principle of glory shining through, vindicates, validates, demonstrates this is God incarnate. This is the Son of God. You must see it or you perish. So that's illustration number two, I mean analogy number two. Here's number three, and this one gets very close to the Scriptures and so overlaps so much that I feel warranted in writing a book about the Scriptures this way. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we move from nature to incarnation to gospel, the message about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the bullseye of the whole counsel of God. Chapter 4, verse 4, 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What a phrase. The light, that's not a candle or or a bulb, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, the gospel is a story of of the death, substitutionary death by which Jesus bears the sins of his people and removes the wrath of God and pays the debt for sin, rises from the dead, vindicates everything he's done. That package of glorious truth has a glory shining from it, according to this verse, The light. Of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In verse 6, same thing, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, how do you know the gospel is true when you hear it? Paul says, because there's a light, a divine Supernatural, spiritual, real, objective light that shines from the Christ and the events of the gospel such that if you have eyes to see, you will know that's true. Just like you look at those lights or look at me and say, he's there. That will carry you through the flames. If it's real, not like this. I, I, I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm scared of hell, so I'm going to co- say the Bible's true. <laughs> that, won't, that won't work through cancer. Why do I call it a peculiar glory? Because I don't want to just talk in terms of generic brightness. And majesty. And I want to talk about the, the way brightness and majesty in a peculiar way runs through the Bible and consummates in the gospel. And what I mean by that is a mingling of majesty and meekness. So if you ask me to put in one phrase, what, what's peculiar about God's glory? I would say what's peculiar about it is that it is so majestic and big combined with such amazing condescension and lowliness. You can feel that right, right through the Bible. Isaiah cries out, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you. Well, why is he so unusual? Who works for those who wait for him. <laughs> so God of the universe spots a lowly, sinful person waiting for him. I need you, I'm helpless, help. And he comes and works for them. That's what I mean by moving from majesty to meekness, and it's, it's just all over the Bible. That kind of glory, that when you see it, you say, that's not merely human, that's of God. So summing, summing up, those three analogies here, God confirms that the world is his by revealing glory through it. God confirms that Jesus is his son, divine son, by the glory that shines through him. And the gospel is vindicated, validated by the glory of Christ that shines through the gospel. And my argument is, if you just extend that line, the Bible, the whole Bible, is known to be God's word that way. The problem is we're all blind, we're born blind, we're all natural people, not spiritual people, and 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he, he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we all have eyes and we're blind, which means we need a miracle to happen, children need a miracle to happen. Adults need a miracle to happen and the miracle is described in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. The God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So here here we are, every one of us at some point in our life, and here again I'm going to say, you don't need to know the vocabulary for this to happen to you. You're reading the Bible, you're listening to a sermon, reading a tract, And verse 6 happens, God shines in your heart with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and you know this is of God. That's what the eyes of the heart are for, seeing divine glory that this eye cannot see. It can only see pointers, signs. That's so why Jesus called his miracles signs. Lots of people believed Jesus' miracles and went to hell. His brothers knew he could commit miracles, do miracles, and he called them unbelievers when they urged him to go show off your miracles up at Jerusalem. So this eye doesn't save anybody, and yet it's essential because it sees the facts, it sees the, nat- the, the creation, sees the Son, sees the gospel, and then, by grace, these eyes in here see and believe. Okay, now here's the way we're going to wrap it up. Children, if I'm right, you judge, you read the book, you listen, decide whether this is right. If I'm right about how the Bible authenticates itself in the hearts of God's people by the revelation of glory, peculiar glory, if I'm right, that's what children have to experience. So, I've got four observations about children in this regard. Number one, children believe the Bible. If they're growing up in a Christian home, I'm thinking, children believe the Bible because their parents believe the Bible and treat the Bible as true. And that is not a spiritual act, and it saves nobody. Okay? To believe, for a three-year-old to believe that the Bible is true because mom and dad do is not a saving belief. Because Hindus believe for that reason, Muslims believe for that reason, Jews believe the Tanakh is true for that reason. All kids growing up in religious homes, in the beginning, believe the book because their parents do. So having said it's not saving, I'm going to say it's awesomely important and glorious. Therefore, Build as much Bible into those little unspiritual minds as you can. Build them in. Don't ever say, well, he's a little reprobate, unregenerate kid, so he can't do anything worthwhile with the Bible. So I'm going to wait until I see some evidences of awakening before I put any Bible in his head. That's insane. That's insane. Three reasons. One, because God uses early natural learning for later spiritual purposes. That's the first reason. It's insane to wait. Second reason, it's insane is because you can't discern that awakening when it comes. You, it it can come slowly, gradually. It just there. You don't know whether. This little child is going to be awakened by God to the beauty of spiritual truth at 4 or 14. You you don't know. Don't risk anything by waiting to think you can know when that is. And the third reason it's insane is, is because God uses Scripture that has been received naturally to bring the awakening about that you're waiting for. But to wait for it would be backward. So, my first observation is children come to believe in their heads that what mom and dad say is true. That's not a saving belief. It's just a glorious belief. That's a wonderful thing that God designed children to be submissive at age two and three and four to what their parents believe Dad says it's real. I believe it's real. That's a good thing. Proverbs are built around that kind of assumption. God made it that way, and you should be glad that way, but not assume anything naive about it. Just exploit it with all your might to pour it in to their lives because they can handle way more than you think they can, way more. They can memorize more Scripture than you ever dreamed possible to be memorizing, and a good parent will help them do it. Fighter verses are a good start, but only a start. (laughs) Oh, kids can learn so much more than one verse a week. Good night. Like a chapter a week. (laughs) Takes a little work for the parents, but good for you too. That's the first observation. Pour it in. Number two. As the children grow in their capacities to understand things and feel things, the parents and all the Christian adults around them in ministry should be helping them see the right understanding of Scripture and drawing their attention in that right understanding to the peculiar glory of God. Now, that may be a little different than the way you've self-consciously set out your goals. may not be very different in reality, but... In words, it might be different. So I'm saying, uh, besides pouring it in, pouring the Bible into these two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, pouring it in, as their minds and hearts are growing, you're discerning how to explain to them right understandings of all that they 've seen and learned in that Bible, and in that right understanding you 're pointing to the peculiar glory of God over and over again in all of its manifestations. I me give you an illustration so you know what what i 'm talking about. Um, take the uh, night when Jesus was betrayed, and what happened there. Let me read it to you. This is Matthew 26, 50. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So you're reading this to your little class of six, seven, eight-year-olds. They came up and they laid their hands on him and seized them. And look, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest cut off his ear. This is really teachable, especially for boys. <laughs> then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think, this is Jesus talking, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Well, that's your text for this morning on, for the kids. What do you do? Well, the first thing you do is ask them, you know what a legion is? (laughs) Well, probably they won't. My kid probably would have. It's always embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I could tell you a story about Karsten. He, He took the entrance exam for Bethel Seminary when he was seven years old. I mean, the Bible knowledge part, like, you know, the names of the apostles. Or something. And he passed it to get into seminary. Just, just facts, you know. <laughs> Do you know what a legion is? No. What's a legion? A legion is the name of an, of an army group that has 3,000 soldiers in it. How many of those did Jesus say he could call on? 12. How many angels is that? So you get a math whiz in the class. 36,000. Whoa, you know how many 36,000 is? Now, here, let's show you how I do pedagogy. I went to Google and I looked up how many police there are in Indianapolis. Let's type it in Police Force, Indianapolis. There's about a thousand sworn officers in Greater Minneapolis, uh, uh, Indianapolis, Greater Minneapolis. So that's a thousand. So you know, there's a thousand police officers in your city, policemen, guns, <laughs> clubs. <laughs> just, just, and, and Jesus, if he wants to, just goes and 36 Indianapolis police forces show up, wipe them out. Yeah. <laughs> so now you've got the majesty in place, right? And then you ask these kids, "Why didn't he do that? Why did he do that? They couldn't kill him. He knew they were going to kill him. It's written in the book. And let him, let him answer." He wanted to die. He could have been saved just like that. couldn't have been saved. He didn't have to die. And then you see how lowly, how sacrificial, how loving, how servant-like for you, Mary, for you, Johnny. So, I think the second point is, as you show them a right interpretation of the Bible, you, if you can draw attention to the glory. You you say to him, isn't he amazing? I mean, choose your words, whatever the kid. Isn't he amazing? It's not just um, there's something here about the atonement or something. He's amazing. He's amazing. There's nobody like him. Nobody talks like him. Nobody acts like him. And I think God can open the heart of a six-year-old Or less or more open the heart and see Jesus see the peculiar glory of Jesus and never doubt the Bible again that's me that's John Piper at six years old that's when I believed and I never walked away from the Bible it has held me I write about it in the first chapter I didn't hold a view of the Bible for 30 years through through my education. It held me. It held me. I couldn't. I mean, it was in Germany, for goodness sakes. Nobody in my university believed the Bible. That's where I got my last degree. Nobody believed. In every class, it was treated like a, a secular book. And I never, never walked away. Why is that? You can't not not believe if you see glory. Was that number two? Okay, I'm lost in my little uh, here. Said there were four, didn't they? Oh, there's the summary of number two. Got it. Let's go to number three. I think these are shorter now. Um, at at some this is third observation. At some point. We don't know when, God moves in to his elect children, and he opens their eyes, and uh, by a supernatural power, their hearts perceive the peculiar glory. They, They don't have any idea about this language I'm using here, right? They don't have any idea of this language, and they can see it. They can see it. And of course, right here, so many issues need to be dealt with when you talk about God opening the heart of a little child, but I'll just give you one observation. A child, just like a newly converted adult, may experience new supernatural spiritual sight and taste of Jesus long before he can articulate with biblical accuracy what happened. So, don't don't think you can discern immediately when he has seen. That's not your job. Your job is to faithfully put the truth before him, point him to the peculiar glory, exult over that glory with him, draw him into it, and trust that God will open his eyes. Last, last point. Um, there is a maturing now when the child's eyes are open, there's a maturing of a child's faith as he grows through young adulthood. And we are praying all the time uh, for a deepening capacity of seeing and savoring the glory of God and growing capacities for understanding and describing. So that's what your goal is. is once, Once a child is seeing and loving and trusting and resting and excited about this peculiar glory in this man, Jesus and his Father and his way of salvation, then you spend all of your time helping him understand more and express more so that when he shows up at a conference like this in 30 years, he knows all the language. He sees it. He gets it. What a glorious thing that would be. So I end like this. Summary. So my answer to how a child can come to know that the Bible is true is that the peculiar glory of God shining through the lives of his parents. I passed over that point, but here it is. The lives of his parents, as they assume from a position of authority, lowly care and love and delight in their kids, they see that. Peculiar glory. A big, powerful daddy is on the floor with me. Big, strong, authoritative mommy forgave me. They're seeing it. And then you're pointing them to it in the Bible every day. And you're saying, this is the way to understand this text. And isn't he amazing? There's no one like him. And if God is merciful, they see And if they see, they cannot not believe. Here's the way we're going to end. Let's take, before you walk out, let's take a few minutes and pray. Because what I've presented is that a miracle has to happen for you and for them to know the Bible is true. A miracle of inner eyes being opened. That's why Paul prays for those eyes to be open in in Ephesians 1.18. You could go there and pray that. So let's do, let's do it this way. Whenever you're done praying, and that may be right now if, if you don't feel inclined to pray, or you may pray for an hour, but, but I'm just assuming that we'll pray either alone, if, if you're alone by yourself, or if you want to cluster up in twos and threes or whatever, let's just ask God, Father, would you open the eyes of my heart to see more clearly the peculiar glory that shines out of Scripture? And two, Would you make me fruitful and effective in helping others, especially kids, see what is there to see? Those two simple prayers. So let's do that. And as you finish, two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, then you can walk out. I think they have refreshments for you out in the lobby. So just gather in your little groupings or alone and pray for the next few minutes.